I just wanted to say one thing. When they said, do you have any kids that are right at 60 or below? It just blew my mind. I, don't, I can't imagine that. But anyway, I'm still 18, right? I'm going to read this morning from the first chapter of Jonah. You can find it in page 654 in your pew Bibles. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten, to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, And I fear that the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights.
What's the first thing that pops in your mind when you hear the name Jonah? Well, if I was to guess, it would be a big fish or a whale, right? Uh, I probably would think that if someone asked me the same, same uh, thing. The fish is integral to the story. Kind of a, a big deal. As kids, we, we may have seen the uh, flannel graph presentation, if you're following me, uh, or some uh, VBS skit on it, or we might have seen that uh, cartoon storybook Bible, all depicting a terrifying story in an all-too-kid-friendly way. Uh, Jonah is not rated G. Uh, the, the Assyrians are involved, which makes it rated R. Uh, so n- no doubt the fish is central to the story, but the book of Jonah is spectacular because it's about God, a sovereign, gracious, and kind God. The fish gets too much press. God needs to get more press. The book of Jonah is ultimately about Jesus Christ, who should get more press. Do you remember when Jesus was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his uh, resurrection? Luke 24, verse 27 says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus used the book of Jonah to explain and teach things about himself. Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets, and it's, it's one of the 12 minor prophets because the minor prophets are shorter than the major prophets. Jonah likely wrote the book, but we don't really know exactly who the author was. Jonah is literary historical narrative, so it's unique. It focuses more on Jonah's life than on Jonah's message. Is Jonah allegory, as some people take Jonah to be? No, Jonah is history, history. Well, how do we know? For starters, 2 Kings 14, verse 25, another historical book, refers to Jonah as a historical prophet. Historical references are made throughout the entire book of Jonah, like uh, his father, Amittai, uh, the mention of real cities like Nineveh, Tarshish, and Joppa, and even an accurate historical description of Nineveh. And, most importantly, Jesus treated Jonah as historical fact in Matthew 12 and other places in the gospel. So, Jonah really happened. This actually is a, is a story, and I think that makes it like real to us if we think this is history. These are actual people going through this. Jonah was born in Geth Hefer uh, in the region of Galilee in northern Israel. He prophesied during the reign of of King Jeroboam II, the 14th king of the northern kingdom. Uh, According to 2 Kings 14.25, King Jeroboam expanded the boundaries of his northern kingdom according to God's word, which came to him through Jonah. Uh, Yet Jeroboam still did evil in the sight of God. Now, there are some key things that we need to, to know before we go into this book. First, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty which means God has complete ownership and authority over everything in heaven and earth. 
He answers to no one, and he does as he pleases. He possesses superlative power. He controls everything. He rules and reigns over everything. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Second, we're going to see God's boundless grace, his boundless mercy and love and compassion towards stubborn people who run from him and rebel against him. God is good. God is beautiful. God is charitable. God is benevolent. And he reaches through time and space into the depths of human sinfulness to bring people into his presence, to bring people into worship of him. The primary player of Jonah is not Jonah. It's not some dumb fish. It's not the Assyrians. The primary player is God. So look for God in this book. See God in this book and be amazed at who he is. But secondarily, I want to challenge you to look at the people because they're normal people. And I think that you will learn something from them if you, if you see just how their lives unfolded here. So let me summarize where we're going in this entire series. Here's the big point. God is sovereign over everything, gracious and kind to pursue and save stubborn people, and God uses his sinful but redeemed people to reach the nations for his glory and their greatest joy in him. And I think one of the biggest applications, if if I was to guess, of this series will be this. Do we have the loving and compassionate heart of God to pursue even our worst enemies with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we have the heart of God? Are we willing to do what God calls to us? This book calls us to have the heart of God. Calls us to do radical acts of of love and kindness and compassion for those people who are far from God. Uh, This book calls us out of our safety, out of our selfishness, out of our self-righteousness to go to lost people with the gospel because we love God and we want to obey him and we love people who are far from God. So I, I think we're going to see some great things in this book. The book of Jonah begins with God's word. What a great place to start. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God commanded Jonah to go to preach truth to his evil enemies. Nineveh was in modern-day Iraq. I'm trying to work on that because I say Iraq, but I looked online and that's not correct. It's actually Iraq, so I'm trying Uh, That is about 550 miles northeast, if you can imagine that, of Jerusalem, about 220 miles north of Baghdad. Nineveh was built by Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod. What a name. Kids, you might like this about Nimrod. Nimrod is known for being the first mighty man on earth and a mighty hunter before the Lord. We probably would have loved Nimrod. He built many cities long ago, before Jonah's time. Nineveh became the capital city of Assyria. And in Jonah's day, it was a great metropolis, and according to Jonah, a three days journey in breadth. With over 120,000 people, 
and much cattle, which is a, an interesting thing to add at the end of the book. But verse 2 says that Nineveh was evil before God. Evil. And God sent Jonah to call out against it. Uh, Dr. Richard D. Phillips said that Nineveh was a place of unbounded violence and evil. Uh, Assyria considered themselves sadistic and genocidal oppressors. They reveled in violence. And I can't even put a lot of the details of some of the gruesome things that I read about Assyria. Um, Jonah then was a Hebrew who knew the one true God. And the word of the Lord came to him, commanding him to go preach to evil Assyrians. Preach what? Preach what? Verse 1 says Jonah was to call out against Nineveh. If you jump down to chapter 3, verse 2, and it might help just to keep your, uh, your Bibles open to Jonah. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2, it says, call out against it the message that I tell you. Uh, Then verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the message very clearly was judgment. Judgment is coming. Um, But if you look more closely into the story, there was more to it, I think. Look at verses 8 and 9. The king of Nineveh sent this word throughout the city, quote, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, end of quote. So somewhere in there, Jonah must have preached a message of repentance and the goodness of God that they would have known what to do. And and repentance implies the goodness of God, implies that there is forgiveness for those who repent. So it seems as if there was hope in Jonah's preaching, not simply destruction, So understand what God wanted Jonah to do. God commanded Jonah to go and to preach his truth and his goodness and a message of hope to Israel's worst, violent, sadistic enemies. Imagine that God called you right now to go and to loudly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the streets of Pyongyang, North Korea. Or Baghdad, Iraq. How would you feel? I I mean, do you love militant atheists and, and Muslims who want you dead? Do you want to see God save those people? Why didn't God just decimate Nineveh? That would have been awesome. Why send hope? Well, this is what Jonah thought about the word of the Lord, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it or aboard to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And here's what I think was happening inside of Jonah's heart. So you'll have to adjust your sermon notes here a little bit. That's my fault on this second point. Hatred, anger, And self-righteousness drove Jonah away from God in ministry. Hatred, anger, and self-righteousness drove Jonah away from God in ministry. God told Jonah to arise and you go to Nineveh. Well, he arose all right, but he didn't go to Nineveh. 
he, uh, he ran to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jo- Jonah didn't rise like God called Jonah to rise. Uh, of course, Jonah couldn't escape the presence of the Lord. Jonah knew enough about God that he knew he couldn't escape the presence of the Lord. Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord in the temple where God dwelt and God's people worshipped. Jonah 2, verse 4 and 7 allude to the temple. Jonah was running from a call to prophetic ministry that God had given him. And notice something interesting. God told Jonah to arise, just that word, arise, yet we watch Jonah descend into disobedience. Because you hear this down, he went down into. He's descending into disobedience. Verse 3 says, he went down to Joppa. Joppa was a, a seaport city by the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah found a ship, paid his fare, and went down into the ship. Jonah went down. He went down when God called him to arise. He was headed to Tarshish, which if you notice is mentioned three times in one verse, so it's a really important detail. Why the repetition? God sent Jonah northeast. Jonah hopped on the ship and went far west. You understand the direction there? Tarshish was the uh, westernmost part of the Mediterranean world in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. And scholars uh, disagree over where the exact location of Tarshish was, but one theory says that it was a city in uh, southern Spain, west of Gibraltar. And if you've ever seen Gibraltar, I'd rather go to Spain, honestly, uh, than, than Iraq, but... Iraq, see, Iraq, Z, the car, I don't know, I'm confused. Um, Wherever Tarshish was exactly, Jonah was running in the opposite direction of God's call in his life. Why was he running? God's presence, God's presence. He didn't want to be around God's holy temple. He didn't want to hear God's word. He didn't want to obey God. So he went where people didn't love God. He tried to block God out of his life. And isn't that what people do today? You see, they feel so guilty about their sinful lifestyle that they run from God. And they run from worship. And they run from God's people. And they immerse themselves in an anti-God culture and surround themselves with anti-God people so they don't have to feel so bad about themselves. Misery loves company. And that's true. There was more to it. If you jump down to chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, you get a better idea of why Jonah ran. When Jonah eventually preached, Nineveh repented and God spared them. Yet, verse 1 says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Now, why on earth would a preacher get angry when revival breaks out at his preaching? My goodness, I long for that to happen. Jonah was successful. God used him in a huge way. And Jonah 4, verse 2 is the key. After Nineveh repented, Jonah prayed this to God. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Aha. Do you see it? 
Jonah didn't want Nineveh to receive God's grace. He hated the thought of Nineveh repenting at his preaching, at God's grace, at God's mercy, at God's compassion, at God's love, because he hated the people of Nineveh. He didn't want God to save them. He wanted God to decimate them, wipe it out. But Jonah knew the heart of God that he might just spare Nineveh and use his preaching to do it. So Jonah ran in the opposite direction from God's calling to preach truth and grace in Nineveh. He was so angry that God would even consider saving them. And if you go deeper into Jonah, I think you're going to see self-righteousness. You see, Jonah was a Hebrew. He was one of God's chosen people. He was even a prophet. Ka-ching. The Ninevites were pagan dogs and savages far from God. But had Jonah forgotten about his utter sinfulness? Had Jonah lost sight of the sovereign grace of God in his life? Can you see what hatred and anger and self-righteousness does to people? Hatred, anger, and self-righteousness drove Jonah from the joy of the presence of God and great ministry for the glory of God. Hatred turns people from God. uh, Anger turns people from God. Self-righteousness turns people from God. When people shut out God's word, I don't want to hear it. I don't want you to, uh, to, to preach to me, God. I don't want you to teach me. I don't want your people around me telling me about what, what you want. They, they run from him. And they end up running toward their own destruction. So let's do some soul searching here. And let me just say, when the preacher preaches, I work through the material first. This, this challenged me. And it convicted me. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Do you love your worst enemies? Do you pray for people who try, who make it their work to make your life miserable? Do you love those people? Well, there's only one way to break the pattern of hatred and anger and self-righteousness and love like that. The grace of God must change you. The word of God must abide in you. The spirit of God must lead you. Otherwise, you run from the presence of God. You run from the responsibility to love your enemies. You run from his commands. God's word says, do nothing, nothing, from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, Philippians 2, 3. Do you think that you are better or, or, or more morally, um, uh, inherently moral than other people that you compare yourself to? Uh, are there people that you don't want to be saved? Here's a tough one. Do you believe God loves you and accepts you because of what you've done or what you haven't done and others are rejected by God because they didn't live like you and they're not like you? Watch out for self-righteousness in your heart. 
I am so overrun by self-righteousness, and it is sickening. And, um, you know, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. <laughs> and I hope you know I'm kidding about that. Uh, no, he was a pastor. I'm kidding. Okay. If you don't watch it, you start to believe as a pastor's kid who largely enjoyed falling in line that somehow I'm better than the people who aren't following God. If not by the grace of God, where would I be? In the ditch. Under the boot of God's wrath. The only way that any of us are, are loved and accepted by God is God's amazing grace. Can I get an amen? And knowing that can transform your relationships with even your worst enemies, if you get that right. In what ways are you running from the word of the Lord? Many professing Christians, they shut out God's word um, by avoiding personal Bible study, avoiding preaching, avoiding teaching, avoiding God's people, and they preoccupy themselves with meaningless and worthless things. So we all do that to a certain extent. I know I do. Dr. James Bruckner wrote something that I think is so spot on and convicting because professing Christians do this all the time. You might even find yourself doing it, and he writes this, Jonah seeks a culture where he will not hear about God's faithfulness to his people, God's commands, or any reference to God. Many people attempt a similar flight into the culture of secularity. They hope that if they are preoccupied with other values and commitments, they can forget God's word. They hope that if they are surrounded by a crowd that has not heard the instruction, prophets, wisdom, or the gospel of the Lord, they too may be able to ignore it. Man, how true that is. Many professing Christians, they live just like the world They load their schedules with secular things. They surround themselves with people who don't know God, who don't love God, who have no perception of God or His Word, and they purposefully preoccupy themselves with worldly things so that they don't have to hear the truth about God, which applies to them. They claim to know God, we hear it all the time, but they want to feel good about their sin, feel good about their lifestyle, so they they put on the headphones of the world in order to drown out the voice of God. And they do it to their own peril. They run from God who can satisfy their soul forever. My friends, we've got to run to God. To God. We mess up. We do something stupid and we've got blood all over our hands. We run to God. And he wipes us clean. We must grab the hands of our friends and family and run together to God. We must not adopt the values and commitments of the world, but rather value and commit to God's holy word. Don't flee the voice and presence of God by ignoring the Bible Don't don't allow God's word to lie there day after day in silence for you because you refuse to read it, you refuse to study it, you refuse to listen to God. Open your Bibles often and listen to the word of the Lord as you follow God's calling for you. Jonah boarded that ship and bad things happened. Bad things. 
Remember, these are real people in real situations. I don't know if you've ever almost died on a ship. I have not. I'd like to keep it that way. I get seasick. I try to avoid large boats in open water. But I can imagine that if you're on that ship and it's starting to go down, terrifying, terrifying. God hurled a great wind upon the sea, and the storm was so violent that the ship started to break up. The pagan mariners were scared. They were used to the sea. Each was praying to his God while, while he was tossing cargo. They're praying and they're tossing the cargo. We got to get rid of this stuff. We're going down, guys. And Jonah was below sleeping. What in the world? I would not be sleeping. I'd be clutching the mast and tossing my cookies, if you're following me. My goodness. And look at verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Who's caring about life? The pagan mariners. They're praying out, spare us, God. We don't want to die. They're fighting for life. They're doing whatever they can to survive. And the captain was like, get up and pray, man. Pray out to whatever God you can call out to. We'll take any help we can get. Just pray. It was bad, and to find out which man on board had had caused this evil, they cast lots, and the lot appropriately fell on Jonah. The mariners asked Jonah a bunch of questions about himself, and listen to what Jonah said, verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's quite a statement. What are you doing on that dumb boat? Well, they they were out there in the middle of the of the sea that Jonah's God created, perishing under what Jonah's God created. And after hearing that they were, these pagan mariners were exceedingly afraid. So get this, pagan mariners said to one of God's people, one of God's prophets, what is this that you have done? They're rebuking God's man. Pagan mariners They knew Jonah was running from the presence of the Lord, and they were rebuking him, but they were stuck. The storm was getting more violent, and when they asked Jonah what to do, uh, he said, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Great, kill the guy that has a God that's killing us. We don't want to toss him overboard. We don't want to kill this guy. Um... We don't want God to get madder and for him to then kill us, so we don't want to die out here. So instead of tossing them overboard, they just start rowing hard, hard, hard to get back to land. Uh, but again, the, the storm, because of that, they just, it was growing more violent. Things were bad, and now things were getting even worse for the guys on the boat. And so now at this point, something changed for the pagan mariners. Instead of praying to their gods, they prayed to God. Verse 14, O Lord, I think that's Yahweh in Hebrew, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They didn't know what else to do. Uh, So they just hurled the man, a living man, into the Mediterranean Sea to his death. And, And the sea stopped raging. It got quiet, probably. And they're like, nice. I don't know how they responded, but they went on their way. Everything was okay. So here's what we need to see. God is sovereign and fierce and will accomplish his purpose. 
God is sovereign and fierce and will accomplish his work. Where do we see the sovereignty of God? We see it in his word to Jonah. We see it in the storm. Who controls the wind? God does. Who causes mighty tempests? God does. When ships threaten to break apart, but then they stay together, who does that? God does. Who determines the results of cast lots? God does. Who overcomes the efforts of man? God does. Who tells the mighty raging sea when to calm down? God does. And here is a big point that we'll get to uh, more in, in two weeks. Who directs a fish to miraculously keep a man alive? God does. Verse 17 says, and the Lord appointed. You hear the sovereignty of God in that? A great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Oh, what is coming in that phrase? But he kept him alive because God controls things. God sovereignly commanded that fish to come and swallow Jonah whole. And God sovereignly and miraculously kept Jonah alive. God drives history. From the wind to the waves to the boat to the lives of the mariners to the fish to Jonah, all of it was beneath God's command. Why do I say that God is fierce? Was this not terrifying and life-threatening? A situation that God himself created? God does not like it when people run from him, and he does use force. Why do I say that God's will will accomplish, his, that God will accomplish his purposes? Well, we need the whole book of Jonah, so we're just going to kind of put that on hold a little bit. But even pagan mariners recognize this. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. God does whatever God wants to do. As C.S. Lewis alludes to in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, God is not safe. God is terrifying. But God is good. He's good. And he is unfathomably a good king. God is gracious and compassionate to people who don't deserve grace and compassion. God is not obligated to give anyone grace, yet he does often Jonah didn't deserve grace and compassion. He heard the word of the Lord. He ignored the word of the Lord. He ran from God. He disobeyed God. The truth is, Jonah deserved to die in the Mediterranean Sea. The mariners, they were pagans. They worshiped other gods, false gods. They did not know the one true God. They were lost in sin and deserved to die in that storm under the wrath and justice of God. The Ninevites reveled in evil. Jonah, the mariners, and the Ninevites were all rebellious, all stubborn, all blind, all evil, all idolatrous, and wicked people. That sounds like us. None of them deserved anything but God's judgment. But watch how God showed grace and compassion for all of them. God gave the gift of his glorious presence to Israel. Jonah included. God graciously spoke to Jonah. God chose Jonah to be a herald for his truth and grace. God was kindly sending a a great prophet to evil Nineveh to tell them the truth and call them to repentance and faith and joy in God. God spared Jonah and the mariners on the ship. God controlled the lot which led the men to hear about the Lord, the only true God. God listened to the prayers of pagan mariners and spared them. God calmed the sea so the mariners could move along in safety. 
God worked in the hearts of the mariners and what I believe changed them and God appointed a big fish of all things to swallow Jonah and to miraculously save his life. God's grace is amazing grace. God was obligated to do none of that, yet God chose to do all of that. Notice several things. First, when Jonah was hurled off the boat, it was his death sentence. You are dying. This is is it. He was going to die. He knew it. The mariners knew it. It was the end of Jonah. But the impossible happened. God sovereignly appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and save his life. Why? Because God loved Jonah. Rebellious Jonah, loved him. And he had a purpose for Jonah. And God loved the Ninevites and wanted them to hear the truth from Jonah. God's grace saved Jonah to send Jonah. Don't miss that. God saved Jonah to send Jonah. Why did God save you? To send you. Second, the pagan mariners heard about the Lord from Jonah. As Jonah fled God, God used him to reach mariners far from God. God redeemed this. This is great. That's the sovereign grace of God. This is a picture of how God redeems a a situation that we have royally messed up, and he uses it for his own glory. God is sovereign over even our sin. And when the mariners heard about the Lord and when they saw the terrifying tempest calm and the sea cease from its raging, they believed God. They believed him. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, scholars disagree of whether these mariners were converted. I honestly could see it both ways. Okay, but I think the stronger case is that they acknowledged God's name, Yahweh. They recognized his divine sovereign purpose. They feared God. They sacrificed, and they made vows to God, which I think all point to a probably legitimate conversion. Think about it. When did the mariners make their vows? Before or after their lives were spared? Now, if you put that together in our culture... We're clutching stuff. Oh, God, please save me. Please save me. Please save me. I'll do anything if you get me out of this. I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Calm skies, sunnies. <laughs> Scott Free, forget the vows. That's not what these guys did. When God showed his grace, then they made the vows. I think that's significant. I think that's significant. I think that's a response to the sovereign grace of God. My friends, God is actively pursuing sinners far from God. God still saves people from all nations, from all tongues, from all people groups, because that is the heart of God. We need God to now give us his heart for the nations. If you have an ounce of racism in you, it needs to die. Because read Revelation and what the glorious heaven is about. Multi-ethnic, all through the ages. Not monochromatic. God is sovereign over everything. He's gracious and kind to pursue and save stubborn people like us. And we are sometimes very stubborn but God can use us to win others for Christ. Even if we've failed God. You failed God? Great. 
not great, but yes, so have I. So let's work together because he uses broken people. So let's get on it. Let's go. Our sin does not nullify our call to have the heart of God and to go to people far from God to lead them to find their greatest joy and pleasure in God. Don't run from God. Run to God and his great call on your life. And I'll close with this. I hope this is helpful. There are some churches who believe that so wholeheartedly to reach people far from God. That's like part of their mission. That's, that's who they are. It's their ethos. And I've noticed that they don't, don't really preach the Bible much. They, they, they bring it down a little bit. They just water it down because they're trying to reach people who don't know God. And so we're going to try to, good grief, can we preach God's word? Because that's how we reach people far from God. The gospel the word of God. So we will wash nothing out here. I'm not saying in a weak moment I won't up here or someone won't. Consistently at this church, we preach Christ crucified. We preach the depths of the counsel of God so that people far from God can know God as he truly is, not as we as a culture perceive him to be. So please, treasure your Bibles. Treasure God and let us work together to reach people far from God. He uses broken people like us to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace in us. Thank you for uh, not abandoning us. Thank you for using broken people, for giving us a tremendous calling to ministry. And so, God, I pray that you will use Jerusalem Church to reach people far from God and help us not to, in our hatred or anger or self-righteousness, turn a blind ear, or blind ear, a blind eye and a deaf ear to people who are crying out and they need Jesus. All for your glory, God. Amen.